As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. How beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples. And your mouth like the best wine, may the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Hmm. If you've read the Song of Songs in the Bible, where that passage came from, or the Kama Sutra, you won't be wholly surprised that religion has been accused of being obsessed with sex. In a previous edition of Naked Reflections, we dealt with the subject of gender and the strong tendency of the Abrahamic religions towards patriarchy. Modern insights into gender fluidity and sexual orientation have certainly muddied the waters for many, not least religious traditionalists. These days, you'll find the rather inelegant acronym LGBTQ+, sprinkled liberally across news items and magazine articles. What about a scientific perspective? Here's an extract from an article by Chris Smith on the Naked Scientist website. Having sex, where two adults come together and give rise to one offspring, is a pretty inefficient way to reproduce. We could increase our numbers much faster if we could simply copy ourselves. 
Having sex is also downright dangerous for some animals. Just ask a male spider or a prey mantis. The female kills them after sex. But sex is so widespread among both plants and animals that there must be an important evolutionary payoff. So what is sex? Put bluntly, it enables us to mix our genes with those of our partners so that our offspring have half our genes and half our partners, meaning that an infinite range of new genetic variations is possible, possibly enabling us to adapt to our surroundings more effectively. Sex is our subject this week, and I'm happy to welcome back Dr Shannon Shah of King's College London, the Malaysian songwriter and social activist who spoke to us recently about religiously inspired climate justice. But he's also a scholar of religion, gender and sexuality. And with him is couples counsellor Sonia Leach, who worked for Relate, a counselling charity for over 16 years, which offers services for every type of relationship. Sonia is also a qualified sex therapist. So Sonia, Should we necessarily have genes and reproduction on our minds when we have sex, as Chris Smith implies? Of course not. We should have pleasure and delight on our minds. Hasn't sexual pleasure been called one of God's great concessions? And anyway, plenty of sex has nothing at all to do with reproduction. Postmenopausal sex, same-sex sex, sex with yourself. You know, as Woody Allen said, it's sex with someone you love. Don't knock it. We can't simply clone ourselves, as Chris Smith says. Um, And I think the other is what we are searching for. Because, of course, evolution requires diversity. Opposites attract. Opposites attract. Shannon, would you consider the joy of sex then a spiritual matter as well as pleasure? I would definitely consider sexual pleasure a spiritual matter. And I'm not alone. There's a long and illustrious history in Muslim practice, Muslim religious interpretation of the sacred texts on how sexual pleasure is actually a matter of religious obligation. I remember quite early on, this is back in Malaysia in the early days of my activism with Sisters in Islam, the Islamic feminist group, Um, And in their response to the more patriarchal and puritanical interpretations of Islam, were recovering traditions where they said, actually, Islam is a very sex positive religion. You know, sex is not just for procreation. It is for pleasure. And you can locate this within verses in the Quran, for example. I think there's one that's actually quite poetic. It's not quite Song of Songs, but it says, if you are spouses, you are garments to each other. And this has so many different meanings, you know, it means that you take care of each other, you clothe each other, but it's also so intimate because what do you do with a garment? You put it on your body. It's sensual. So there is this idea of reciprocal sexual pleasure within Islam. And we see this in the proliferation of lots of different medieval sex manuals in Islam. I think, Ed, you mentioned the Kama Sutra. So think of these as Muslim equivalents of the Kama Sutra, except they weren't exactly just about sex. You know, there were commentaries about relationships and so on. You know, they were amoral. They were funny. They were humorous. Sure, they were patriarchal and they were very heteronormative, but they also had this freedom in thinking about sexual pleasure for Muslims as a spiritual pursuit. That's beautiful. I think probably Christianity has lost some of that. The joy of sex was a huge hit when it came out in the 1960s. And it was quite an unusual idea at the time. 
Well, I have with me now in front of me my own manuscript called The Perfumed Garden of Sensual Delight mm. that was written by a North African scholar. We don't know if this is his real name. We don't know if he actually existed, but it's Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Nafzawi, right? So he writes his manual apparently for some vizier or caliph in North Africa because people want to know how do we delight each other sensually. I'll just read out the titles of some of the chapters. There are 21 chapters in this very slim manual. You know, it starts with the man of quality, the woman of quality. It goes into the repulsive man and then the repulsive woman. I know, just bear in mind, this is a medieval text. But then it goes into sexual intercourse, sexual technique, names for the penis, names for the vulva. These are actual chapter titles of an Islamic text. I say it's Islamic because there are all these passages of the kinds of herbs people need to imbibe, the kind of practices that they need to make to engage in to increase their sexual pleasure and their virility. But it's peppered with verses from the Quran and religious invocations um, and when this text was discovered by French Orientalist, you know, colonialist rulers in North Africa, they thought that it was so scandalous. It was proof that these Muslims were debauched and only had sex on their minds. You know, for them, it was akin to pornography. But having read it myself, I don't think it's actual pornography. It's just, it's sex talk. It's talking about sex as just a part of life and a part of your spiritual existence as well. It's interesting because when we think about religion, we tend to think about the sort of Victorian Puritan, don't we? Um, now, that's not just a Christian term. There are puritanical elements to Islam, to Judaism, obviously to Christianity, and frankly, other faith traditions as well. So how did we, with all this sex in our literature, how did we lose it? And what helped us rediscover it? I mean, you talk about the joy of sex, Sonia. I mean, in your work in sex therapy, is there a sense there's a sort of repressed element of sex in, in people's lives? What was it that pushed sex down and made it so problematic? A lot of people come for sex therapy because they have a fear of sex and it induces a huge amount of anxiety in them. And this is obviously spoiling their life hugely. And I think it's terribly sad that we've sort of forgotten that adult sex is simply a revisiting of, of the touch of babyhood, you know, where we regress during lovemaking and to that wonderful loss of control when we're being caressed and obviously... Touch is, I think, it's the earliest of our sensations. And added to smell, these things are evoked strongly during sex. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's somehow this has been attached to shame, or if not shame, then sniggering or joking. So really, adult sex is simply a return to the cuddling and stroking of childhood, but with some added benefits. And um it does involve complete vulnerability. And for many people, it's simply not tolerable. That level of intimacy is not tolerable because of conditioning or the way they've been brought up. Or, you know, sadly, they perhaps didn't have very much cuddling in childhood themselves. It's remarkable, isn't it, Shannon, that the text that you've quoted, a wonderful title, The Perfumed Garden of Sensual Delight, is such a strongly Muslim text based on Muslim uh, scriptures and the Quran and, and doubtless Hadith and other passages. I know in the rabbinic literature, there are plenty of 
very explicit sexual passages and also in Christian writings. I'm wondering whether exploring the difference between love and sex, so the Greek word eros, sensual love, agape, a sort of unconditional love, if you like, is this helpful to sort of unpack how it plays out? I think yes and no. On the yes side, I think Muslims, you know, when they appeared on the scene and when a Muslim territories expanded, they, of course, encountered, absorbed and adapted different cultures and different philosophical and religious systems. So, you know, there's a strong Hellenistic Platonist strand in Islamic thinking. So, of course, some of this makes its way into Islamic philosophy, for example, um, on existence, on our relationship with each other and the divine and so on. But there are other ways of thinking about love and sex and sensuality within the Muslim tradition. You know, I'm sort of grasping at the edges of my knowledge of this field. But there was a sense of love as an earthly phenomenon and love as a heavenly phenomenon. So there's the heavenly love of the divine And there's the earthly love that's expressed by mortals. And in that sense, you can sort of see maybe that it maps onto this kind of Greek typology of love, where the earthly love is the one that's, you know, um, marked by, you know, sexual relations and physical preoccupations and so on. But there were mystics and even jurists, you know, classical jurists in Islam who said but there's a connection between the two. So even with earthly love, even with these erotic and sexual desires that we have, this can actually mirror the love of the divine for us and our love for the divine. So lots of Sufi poetry is about this kind of, you know, intense longing, very erotic, very sexual longing for the divine and vice versa. Um, And, you know, one of the practices that was cultivated by pre-modern Sufi mystics was to gaze at beautiful young men without necessarily consummating their relationships. So, you know, this is a kind of chaste sensuality. And within the corpus of, you know, legal literature, people would ask questions like, you know, how far can I gaze at someone? How far does gazing take me? Can I write them love letters? Is it okay if I stroke them? Is it okay if I embrace them and kiss them and even fondle them? You know, and a lot of legal jurists would say, okay, you're hitting the limit here, but this is still fine as long as you don't engage in penetrative sex, right? And this is where I think, Ed, to your earlier question, what happened? I think in terms of the legal tradition within Islam, the way that, you know, sexual taboos were interpreted and imposed, it was a very phallocentric way of thinking about sex. Like sex only happened when there was the penetration of a penis into an orifice and there were lawful orifices that could be penetrated, which is, you know, usually the vagina of the woman that you're married to. And there were unlawful orifices, right? So people bend over backwards coming with different sorts of rulings about what constitutes sex, what doesn't constitute sex. And I think I think nowadays for Muslim communities, we tend to think about this very legalistic dimension of sex, very phallocentric, very heteronormative. There's um, a beautiful Spanish saying, which is, spring needs no gardens, so love needs no frontiers. I love this idea of springtime needing no gardens. We don't need these categories when it comes to love and falling in love anyway is sort of person specific rather than stuck with types. For me, 
I'm not so sure that sex and love are different. They both spring from the same source, which I'm with Freud, the life force, the libido, that energy that reaches out to another person, that desire, that spark of attraction. But of course, obviously, you can have sex without love. Rape, for example, or non-consensual sex or sex which appears to be consensual but isn't really. I hate to bring the conversation down to Disney, but the story of Beauty and the Beast can be understood as a fairy tale of love and sex, where love and sex are personified in the tale as these characters. As the story unfolds, the characters mature and are able to come together willingly they dance together sex and love are aligned together as the beast sex is transformed into a compassionate human being capable of a real emotional connection there is an element in what you're saying about beauty and the beast sonia where it's as much about the relationship isn't it i suppose what i'm trying to get at is the difference in your work between if you like relationship counseling and sex counselling, because there's a fundamental difference, isn't there? There's a big difference. Relationship counselling is a talking cure, and as such requires quite a high level of articulacy, being able to verbalise your feelings, which is not easy for everybody. Whereas sex therapy is behavioural and requires exercises to be done outside the sessions. And These exercises or tasks which you have to do are another way of reaching closeness, bypassing, you know, the arguments that couples have been having. Until I actually trained in sex therapy, you know, we would spend weeks and weeks going round and round and rehearsing old arguments that couples had. And then sex therapy would miraculously solve the problem very quickly. And in my view, I think all couple counsellors should should also be sex therapists or should certainly train in sex therapy. What about judgments, Sonia? Are there points when you can no longer be non-judgmental? There's a sex therapist called Suzanne Lasenza, a US sex therapist. She speaks of queasy moments in sex therapy, which I think is quite a nice expression. And, you know, we will have our queasy moments. And um, certainly all sex therapists have heard a lot of distressing stories about sexual abuse and um, nasty uh, coercion and that kind of thing. There's a, a lot of horrible stuff out there. I think it's so fascinating what you've just said, Sonia, about the connection between sex counselling and, you know, relationship counselling. Because, you know, this manuscript that I've quoted One of its theories is that good sex is so important because good sex is what keeps love alive in relationships. So, you know, we tend to think nowadays that, you know, true love is what will make you enjoy a good sexual relationship. Whereas in this manual, it's the other way around. It's you need to cultivate good sex to keep the flame of love burning in your relationship. And that's why sex is so important. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, in my view, it's a case of attachment makes the love connection, but sex provides the glue. You know, together, it's a a great combination. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Shannon Shah and Sonia Leach. Our subject is sex. Science can take a dispassionate view of these things, if that's the right word, but 
Here's an arresting observation from Paul Vasey in the Naked Scientist show, Meet the Doctors of Love. Despite the fact that such data can be difficult to collect, preferences for sexual partners of the same sex have been documented in a number of animal species, most notably Japanese monkeys. In that particular primate species, females in certain populations routinely choose female sexual partners, despite the fact that motivated male mates are available. Shannon, does that bit of biological science surprise you? No. The short answer is it doesn't surprise me. In fact, it made me think of someone called George Murray Levick. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. Never heard of him. So George Murray Levick was a British explorer. He did fieldwork in Antarctica, you know, sort of cusp of the Victorian to the Edwardian era. And, you know, just some background context. So he was born in 1876. I mean, the British Empire at the time, there were sodomy laws. These were introduced in colonial India in 1861 through the penal code, and they outlawed carnal intercourse against the order of nature. So this was the Victorian understanding of, you know, sodomy. So George Murray Levick, this British explorer, goes to Antarctica. What's the first thing he sees? He sees a male penguin trying to have sex with a dead female, right? And it completely shocks him. And it's all downhill from there. Because then what he sees among these penguins, the Adelie penguins, is he sees rape, he sees incest, he sees homosexuality. He's so traumatized that he only takes notes in classical Greek because he doesn't want anyone else to understand what he has seen. When he finally tells people about the sexual behavior of the penguins, this is behind closed doors. He doesn't want anyone else to know that he saw carnal intercourse against the order of nature in nature. It's only 50 years later that we've finally learned what he observed in Antarctica. What would you say, Sonia, to George Murray Levick if he came to you? I'd say... Don't panic. Evolution requires diversity. We move forward that way. And, well, the Christian church, one could say, has kind of corralled reproduction and taken ownership of it and placed rules around it, heteropatriarchy. But another way of looking at it also, I don't think this bit should be forgotten. Actually, pregnancy and birth are pretty dangerous things for a young woman to go through. I mean, it's only recently that it became as safe as it can be. But way back in history, in a way, the church is protecting young women by, you know, outlawing fornication, sex outside marriage. Now this appears patriarchal in the extreme, but at the time, it was protective. I just think these things have been forgotten. Women are very vulnerable in sexual situation often. I hadn't thought about that before, actually. That's quite helpful because we're so used to particularly church doctrine being understood actually as damaging to women. If, for example, a baby's life and the mother's life's in danger, who do you prioritise? I mean, it's a cause of massive controversy, isn't it? I wonder if I could ask a sort of more contemporary question, which is, the issue of transgender, which has shot to prominence recently, particularly in the UK. How might this help us understand better issues around sex and and sexuality? Well, actually, gender dysphoria is very, very different from one's sexual orientation. Uh, The conviction that you've been born into the wrong body uh, comes much earlier in life than interest 
in either sex. I think they're actually quite separate issues that get conflated. Not entirely separate, but um, the current furore over trans issues really puzzles me. Um, For example, this idea that safe spaces for women are endangered if trans women, for example, are allowed into women-only spaces. I'm puzzled by this. What on earth are these women-only places? I don't know about these safe spaces unless they're talking about ladies' toilets or not a place you'd want to linger in anyway. And perhaps they're talking about women's prisons. Well, transgender women take daily hormones, oestrogen, and their testosterone is reduced estrogen is increased. I don't think they're a threat to other women. To me, it's a bit like uh, saying that a woman who's adopted children is not a real mother, and she's not allowed to attend a baby group with the other real mothers. To me, it just seems simply not very kind, not very nice. And also, transgender women are seen as a huge threat. I think that needs to be unpacked a bit more. I don't know where that comes from. Something to do with having earned your medal as a suffering woman. But being a woman is a very nice thing. And um, I think I I don't subscribe to this having to have suffered to have earned the name of woman. There has never been a society in the history of the world where women have been even approximately equal to men. But I think we're reaching that state now. It's an entirely new thing as far as I know. And contraception's played a huge role here. It's massive. But funnily enough, prior to the pill, sexual practices among young people in the 1950s and 60s um, necessarily involved a lot of petting and foreplay for fear of pregnancy. And ironically, that might have been a better time sexually for women in some ways. I think throughout history, there have always been categories of gender variance and gender diversity that have either been accepted to some degree, more or less, or not accepted. I think in the West now, this might be a problem, but I'm going to use this term anyway. There were eunuchs. There were third gender cultures in what is now India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, in Iran, in Malaysia. And although there wasn't full equality, you know, these relationships were accepted to a certain level. For a long time, even the Kaaba in Mecca, you know, the holy shrine, the guardians were two eunuchs, two third gender individuals, one white, one black. They held the keys to the sacred shrine. So these people had a position in these societies. Now, things have happened with the rise of the nation state, religious fundamentalism, colonialism, and so on. So I'm not saying things are perfect in these countries. I think... A term like transgender only makes sense to us if we understand in the history of Anglophone culture, you know, coming out of this civilizational discourse in the West, you know, how homosexuality became constructed as a term in the 19th century. And people didn't really understand what that meant. And then from there, they had to think, well, how do we categorize transgender? And I think all that is great and fine in this context. But if we want to take that and apply it wholesale to say a cultural environment like Malaysia or modern India, Pakistan, and so on, I think people have understood themselves differently there in the past. You know, the category of trans might make sense, but there are other more indigenous categories that describe this gender fluidity. And I think that is what I hope 
uh, we will get out of this discussion as well, that even when we talk about trans, there are varieties and different ways of being trans. Now we see categories like non-binary, gender fluid, gender queer, and I think all that is to be welcomed. And, you know, not all of them are new developments. Some of them have existed in other cultures throughout history, and we need to sort of recover that history. That's really useful to know, Shannon. The categories that we are stuck on are kind of preventing us from moving on or having a real understanding of the fluidity of gender presentations and gender identities. This third sex idea is very fascinating. I'm sure these things are a lot more common than we might want to think. Yeah, and it existed on many different levels. I think in the Mughal Empire, you had eunuchs who controlled political power and economic power within the royal court, right? So there was elite eunuchs, but there were also folk communities, you know, third gender houses. And I'm talking about trans feminine experiences. I don't know enough about trans masculine experiences in those contexts. But there were these houses where these hijras or kawajasaras, as they're known in Pakistan now, will go out and dance and sing to bless the birth of a baby, to bless a new married couple, you know. And this was kind of accepted. And they would go alongside the local imam from the mosque. <laughs> so these are things that have existed in history in those cultures. Of course, you know, some of this is under threat now. I'm not trying to see things through rose-tinted glasses. But again, that was a part of history and it's still a part of history in many of these communities now. Well, with that nuance, Shannon and Sonia, I'm going to have to stop right there. Well, thanks to you, Shannon Shah and Sonia Leach, for your insights. And thanks to you, dear listeners, for your attention. If you enjoyed the show, you might also want to browse our archive of podcasts, which includes that dialogue about gender I mentioned at the top of the show. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. There are lots of goodies to be had. I'll be back next week with more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.